This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Pride's Easy Feed. On Saturday the 24th of February, Rose Hill Gardens will host three Group 2 races, the Hobartville, the Silver Slipper and the Millie Fox Stakes, named after the lady who drifted into racing in 1965 when her husband Stan gave her a thoroughbred racehorse as a birthday present. The widely respected Millie Fox was in step with Stan as he increased his involvement to 60 horses within two years. Stan Fox passed away in 1974 but Millie continued to operate Nebo Lodge at Rose Hill with Brian Mayfield-Smith as her trainer. In 1996, the Sydney Turf Club introduced a fillies and mares race called the Millie Fox Stakes at black type level. It was a listed race for 10 years, a Group 3 for 5, before going to Group 2 in 2013. Red Tracer made this race her own with consecutive wins in 2012, 13 and 14 and confirmed her class by also winning a Maya Classic and a Tats Tiara. The only other multiple winner of the Millie Fox is the gay Waterhouse trained Montana Flyer who scored in 2010 with Blake Shin and again the following year with Tommy Berry. Blake Shin also won the race on first seal in 2016. This daughter of Fastnet Rock overcame a niggling hind foot problem to win $1.2 million and become New South Wales Horse of the Year in 2014-15. 16 months before winning the Millie Fox, First Seal had beaten Winks in the flight stakes by an emphatic three lengths. The Millie Fox is coming up again on February 24 as the Sydney Autumn Racing Carnival gets into full swing. Shimzik and Miss Potential, they race to the 300 metres together, here's the jewel after them, then we've got on the outside Irish Rover, Bell News coming across heels as well, Miss Potential, Shimzik over on the outside, the jewel wide of Bell News and look at excellence, look at excellence flying, right down the outside, amazing, he is a megastar, excellent, outstanding. That was the instantly identifiable style of Tony Lee as he called the unforgettable win by Excellent in the 2005 Mudsway Stakes at Hastings. That was the voice and the trademark style that moulded Tony Lee into a household name in New Zealand for more than four decades. If he was feeling emotional as he prepared to call the recent Wellington Cup at Trentham, he concealed it well. His call was flawless, despite the distraction of a riderless horse for much of the race and the difficulty of having horses heading to the middle of the track and even wider in the run home. His commentary will leave the connections of the winner, Mary Louise, with a lifetime memento of her great win. Tony has put the binoculars aside after four decades of service to the New Zealand racing industry and countless hours of entertainment to punters, racing fans and horse lovers throughout the country. It all started at the Hutt Park Trots in Wellington more than 40 years ago. As his career unfolded, he began to specialise in the calling of thoroughbred racing, a craft he mastered in every sense of the word. Tony has a great love of horses and a passion for horse racing and it showed through in every call at every track. 
Tony, I simply want to add my tribute to the hundreds you've already received from all sections of the racing industry and from your friends and associates in the racing media. What a send-off it was at Trentham. Surely was, John. Yes, hey, how are you doing? And uh, everyone tuning in as well to uh, a special broadcaster, Mr John Tapp, and it's, uh, it's actually an honour, John, that you've uh, taken the time to go into this and we'll have a bit of a chat. And, uh, yeah, look, the emotion was there on the day. It was sort of – it had been a bit of a long wind down, uh, you know, various clubs, uh, farewells and that going on for the previous month, five weeks, uh, and uh, various places as well. So – um, yeah, I tried not to think how big that moment was going to be for me uh, when they uh, did line up in the cup on that final occasion for my call. Um, but it was. It was uh, it was very, very big. I had my family there and uh, all the young ones as well, the four grandchildren and parents and the whole the whole lot, all there. And, uh, yeah, and friends as well. So it was a special, special but tough day. Mm. By gee, the cup was a messy race to call. I was feeling for you in the run. Wasn't it? Wasn't it? And you could see early, and uh, I, did, I, I missed the actual fall. I just sort of got the peripheral of one going out the side, and uh, I've got a close association with the trainer of Waisaki, Alan Sharrick, and mm-hmm. he'd done a marvellous, marvellous job to get the horse from breaking down two years ago back to being a contender and on song going into that race. And I thought that instant flash, it, I can't see Waisaki's colours, you know, I can't, yeah. but I just checked for a second or two, but it sure was, uh, yeah, and that made... Um, the race, uh, yeah, it, it, it impaired the race, really. It did. Uh, luckily, mm. horse and rider are okay, but uh, just one of those situations that happens uh, in horse racing and mm. happened in that one. It was a big day for jockey Craig Grills and for trainer Robbie mm. Patterson, who won the Cup, and the group won Thorndon Mile with Puntura. And they'll be tickled Indeed. pink tone to have your calls on both races. They'll be listening to those for many years to come. Yes, uh, they will. They will. And look, I've got a good friendship with Robbie. He's a, he's a, he's a good human being who ha- works really hard, the, the trainer there. And um, uh, also those connections of both of those horses I've had interaction with uh, over the years, and they're very passionate people um, with their horses, as, as a lot of owners naturally are, and they're pretty wholesome owners as well in the percentages that they have of these horses. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, they, and, and Robbie involves them. It's uh, it, it was a very, very special day for Robbie and Craig Grills, of course, long-time racing family and a nice man to boot. Um, uh, yeah, I've got a, a good con- close contact, I suppose, with him when we chat, and uh, it's mm. that's how we vicariously enjoy these wins, I suppose, John, but it helps certainly to call the emotion home too. Mm. The media attention to your retirement began as far back as last July, and it was relentless in the week leading up to the big day. It's all very gratifying, Tone, but it's hard on the nerves. Mm. There is. You find an expectation with it as well. And mm. um, um, I just sort of try and had to put that aside and just uh, you know be reasonably professional to right through to the end. And but yeah, it is hard on the nerves, and it's uh, and it's wearing on you as well. I know the retirement isn't completely on your own terms. We live in an age of corporate decision-making based largely on revenue. And sadly, this Mm. was the catalyst for your departure from TAB Trackside. I know you understand the bottom line, despite the depth of the disappointment. 
Yes, correct, uh, correct, and that's exactly how it appears to have happened. Um, they they decided that their calling roster was uh, now full with a, a young fellow they'd been training for uh, twelve months, and he's going to be all right too, mm-hmm. uh, Dan Fogarty. Um, uh, but yeah, that was what they said to me. And so when uh, Entain uh, did the joint venture or bought into TAB here, uh, we all had to do uh, new contracts, and uh, mine was only offered for six months to. Just uh, January just passed. And your replacement at most of those tracks will be Justin Evans. I think he's a Dunedin boy originally, isn't he? And you trained him up a few years ago. Yeah, I did, actually. Funny how life works uh, out, doesn't it? Yes, I did have quite a bit to do with Justin oh, 20-odd years ago, I suppose. He was uh, following mm. me around. I'd get him to do the odd trial and, and odd race, actually, here and there. Uh, and mm. that was allowed back uh, in those days. And then... He's, he went right away from racing. He went into um, radio uh, hosting, breakfast host. He was pretty good at that also. Mm. Anyway, he's had a passion to come back. He's a Palmerston North boy, which is, uh, you know, he, he's close to, that's right in the middle of the central district where we call. Yeah. Um, but he did go to Dunedin for five years after being uh, accepting a job with uh, Trackside to be the race caller uh, in that part of the land. So, uh, and now with me moving on and the young guy coming through going to Justin's area and Justin coming here, there's been a, a shuffle around. And uh, yeah, look, he's a, he's a fine caller too. He'll be he'll be fine. He's very good at that job and he's also passionate about it as well. So, which is good and good ads. And we wish him well. Well, Tony, yeah, you and I sure. worked together only once. And it was 28 years ago when I had the privilege of being a guest commentator at the 1996 Wellington Cup meeting. And now the outcome of my day depended largely on the help I was going to get from you. Your hospitality and assistance was overwhelming. You made me feel very much at home. Oh, well, you're a bit of a hero, of course, John, you know, um, as a as a broadcaster, race caller and just your personality. So, yeah, very happy to have you here and very happy that you, uh, that you enjoyed the occasion too. I've never forgotten the broadcast box. <laughs> it, it was tiny and when you walked in, you had to step down into it. It was more like a bunker than a broadcast box. Surely it's not still there, is it? <laughs> Thankfully, it's gone. I'll never forget what you said as you went to walk in the sort of three-quarter size door yeah. uh, down into that little. It was built on a step, wasn't it? In fact, so down into that well, mm. and you said, "I, I think Chris Munz will be the only one that can walk into this doorway." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dear, it was probably our smallest jockey at that time. Yeah, yeah, and to show John Tapp's professionalism. Uh, audience there he, we were the race was going and there was um problem with the feed or the wiring or something so it wasn't getting wasn't quite all coming to plan as it should so mm. john's calling the race and here's this guy technician guy in this little bunker yeah <laughs> crawling around at his feet at your feet and while you're calling the race trying to make sure the leads are all plugged in whatever i don't even know what it was it was all a minefield for me that sort of stuff but <laughs> you just didn't miss a beat you were terrific oh dear. well mate you, you've got to uh You've you've got to be oblivious to all forms of distraction when you're calling a horse race. That's true. That is so true. And we aren't always. Now, there were 20,000 people there that day. It was a beautiful summer's Mm. day in Wellington. And when the cup came along, I sat up in the stand with my wife, Anne, and we listened to your call. The winner was a horse called Yes Indeed, and the rider was Jock Cadigan. How's he going? 
Jock Cadigan. Well, he hasn't been writing for uh, quite some time. I, I don't even know what he's up to these days. Jock, he was always a friendly sort of a guy. And, mm. uh, you know, he, he had a, another big race in Auckland in their cup with uh, Katari Chief, I think it might have been, who went out to 20-length lead and did mm. hold on and was a roughie on the day. Mm. So he had a bit of history in the big races, but, yeah, yes, indeed did. You did something that day I'd never heard before from a course broadcaster, and I don't think I've heard it since in Australia. As the field came down the straight with a lap to go in the two-miler, you encouraged the crowd to give the runners and the riders a big round of applause, and the reaction was amazing. You loved to get them involved. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I did, and uh, sort of did urge them most of the time actually to do that. It, uh, it all started maybe a couple of years before that, um, and uh, I got told off actually by the great late uh, Trevor McKee, mm-hmm. trainer there who had uh, Interval, one of the favourites for the race, and, and I got the crowd to go, and Interval sort of really <laughs> wanted yeah. to take his hook and go. You know, he got really strong for uh, Lee Rutherford, as she was uh, then, Lee Tiley now, with the uh, wife of Nigel Tiley. And, mm-hmm. um, yes, but, uh, but yeah, that was where it started. I just thought they might, we might have needed uh, just a little bit of something on the day, and luckily it caught on. You were one of six kids born to Alan and Nita Lee, and you grew up on a dairy yes. farm at a little place called Rongatia near Palmerston Correct. North. Was there any racing background in the family at all? Uh, there was, um, so they had a wee dairy farm there. Uh, my father had an interest in horses, um, and he raced the odd one or two mm-hmm. uh, over many years, uh, you know, set apart. And uh, my one of my older brothers, Craig, who's the second oldest of that six uh, mm-hmm. family there, he was very keen on, on the horses. So I used to tag along with him, and he's eight years my senior. So mm-hmm. um, I, was, I was a young fella going along, and uh, but no, we, and we went to a lot of meetings together, and we had a lot of fun, actually. Yeah. Well, what sparked your actual interest? Was it a combination of the appeal of the thoroughbred and the buzz of the racetrack? Yeah, I think so, and the appeal of uh, a broadcast for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know how it got stuck in my head, but it was, it was that's what I wanted to do. I'd had, uh, I was working as a sound recordist uh, for a film crew uh, doing news stories uh, in Wellington uh, around that time. Mm. Uh, so I so thought I guess I was around the broadcast uh, world um, to some extent, so I knew a little bit about that. And uh, Peter was a caller here uh, back then, and he had uh, what I refer to as magic in his voice. You know, mm. you, you wanted to listen, and just the way he delivered it, however he delivered it, and not everyone's got it, but he certainly did have it. And uh, so just, uh, I guess, a, a uh, some fancy I had uh, about doing it, and and uh, and I went through to do it. Started off doing the Hut Park trots because I found out mm. they didn't have a, a trial, trials only. Mm. They didn't have a quarter there, so uh, I put myself in in there and did that for free for a long time. There's only one, two, or three horses in the trials, so I wasn't <laughs> wasn't <laughs> mixed up at all. <laughs> but that's that's how it started, and my enthusiasm was there and. Uh, I used to go out to the trots and call just into a tape recorder on the roof when uh, the other caller, Alan Bright, was uh, still there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had enthusiasm um, and I, and I, and I uh, got interviews going on 2ZB, which is a Wellington uh, Radio New Zealand uh, station that when the trots were coming up at Hart Park mm-hmm. in that area. They'd play a few interviews and I'd sort of got along that way. And then 
Um, Peter Kelly, who I spoke of, became unwell. I think he had a heart attack, and Alan Bright was then required to do more meetings, mm. and that made uh, for the way for me to start doing uh, the trots every year, way back in 1983. The first night that Anthony Butt drove as, uh, as in the uh, in the sulky as well was that very night. Mm. And Anthony developed and, and remains a brilliant race driver, uh, tactician. Mm, Horses is. love him. He's one of the best yeah. uh, harness drivers I've seen in my many years in the business. Yeah, it's part of him, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Sure. Now, you mentioned Peter Kelly uh, with the great Reverend Tony. He was a legend in his time. He was also a highly regarded auctioneer with Wright Stevenson mm. bloodstock, and he added great theatre, they tell me, to the New Zealand yearling sales. So he's the race caller, um, or, or he's one of several race callers over the years to have benefited from the patter and the technique of auctioneering. Exactly, exactly. Um, at the same time that I was showing some interest in the broadcasting there, I, I, I took up a job as an auctioneer, uh, but in the fruit and veggie markets, mm. downtown Wellington there, and uh, yeah, it was uh, interesting, uh, it was good, it was high pace, certainly, there was a lot of drama going on there, so, uh, and I got my, my pitter-patter going from uh, from there, and a, a, a mm. guy that sort of took me under his wing, he said, now listen, you to become an auctioneer, you go out and practice wherever you're, in the car, at the sea, wherever you like, stand on top of the hill, Mm. But uh, you practice um, how you're going to say something, you know, how you're going to do your call as, a auction, as an auctioneer. Mm. And then later I took that through to the uh, race calling. But And and then once you've got the how, you can, uh, that's sort of semi-automatic if you like, then you can concentrate on what you're saying. And uh, that was a pretty big piece of advice, I think, back then. Yes. Harness racing discontinued at Hutt Park as far back as 1995, but didn't they bring mm. it back for a little while, a few years later? Yeah, uh, they did, but now gone. Uh, they've come, become part of uh, the Kapiti uh, Coast uh, Harness Club, I think, uh, and they race on the grass up at uh, Ultaki a couple of three times a year. So, mm. yes, from uh, that 16 or 17 race nights that they used to have to to now. It's a bit of a shame, but that's progress. I think it's a nine-hole golf course. Mm. Tony, your style started to develop pretty quickly. An identifiable voice, good rhythm, accuracy always, and above all, passion. And you shared that passion yeah. with listeners on and off course. What drove yeah, that passion you. that you could hear every time you got behind a microphone? Um, I just think my love of the horse, I suppose, and you get to know so many connections as well. So, you know, there's a there's a little point of interest around uh, a lot of that. Um, but I just thought that because you know I knew how hard it was to to race a horse, let alone win a race, uh, and I, I sort of wanted that to always to be fairly special for uh, those connections. So that was, I think, the the, the driving force behind it, and uh, I was. You know, starstruck by the game as well. All these people and horses and that were all of a sudden around me and, uh, you know, it was, wasn't hard to be enthusiastic, that's for sure. Mm. Your excitement and personal involvement was most evident when a good horse produced a good performance. The 1994 Wellington Cup is a perfect example. 
as old yeah. Castletown hit the line to win his third Wellington Cup, you said the dream has burst into reality. And that expression yeah, has did. been quoted a million times over by New Zealand racing fans. It has, and it was early on in my career as well. So I was lucky. He'd, he'd won it, uh, he'd missed the previous year, but one of the two years uh, prior to that. And uh, there was a day, uh, the day that, yes, indeed, when we knew there, it was a beautiful day. It was 20,000 plus, I would say. There was uh, uh, Rod Stewart and Rachel Hunter, who were married at the time, and she's a Kiwi girl. Um, mm -hmm. uh, they were the guests of the club, and they were just fantastic. And uh, and then Castletown came out and, uh, and did that. It was just, uh, yeah, it was a surreal day, emotional day. I was crying afterwards. It was something very, very special. Mm. I've got to ask you this. Did you get to meet the iconic superstar Rod Stewart on the day? No, I didn't, unfortunately. Wouldn't mind. And uh, he just, he's a bit of a lair, they, they were saying. He's a good good fella. Mm. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, he, he just – he let her take the centre stage, you know, and he just sat back and did what he was doing quietly. So, uh, but, yeah, yeah, they were, they were so, so famous. Mm. Getting back to Castletown, what an iron horse he was. He yeah, raced 103 times, Tony. <laughs> he won 16, he ran 20 placings, he made 1.85 million back then. Three Wellington yeah. Cups, an Auckland Cup, a New Zealand Derby, a Caulfield Stakes in Melbourne, and he ran in three Melbourne Cups. God love him. He ran third in one of them to Sub-Zero in 1992. He went on forever. He did. He was amazing. And you know... John, as your listeners will know, or viewers will know, that um, for a horse to get prepared for a 3,200-metre race, they have to have extreme training. You know, they have to uh, really be asked uh, for a high, high level of fitness and endurance as well. And sometimes on the way through on that journey, uh, it's a little too tough for some of them. But him to race over those uh, 32, that 3,200 metres as often and as well mm. as he did just spoke volumes for not only the horse's soundness, he was a finer bone type of a horse with a lovely mm. big loping stride on him, mm. um, but also to his trainer, uh, Paddy Buzzardin. Mm. He's the father of Trent, pretty, will be pretty well known over there. Um, and, uh, yeah, he trained actually here at Foxton where I live and he used the beach a lot. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he was uh, just such a wonderful and genuine horse. He just gave every time he could. Mm. I believe a young Chris Waller was Castletown's strapper on a couple of his trips to Australia. Did you get to meet young Waller? Yes, I did, actually. I did. I did meet Chris when he was uh, with, the, with the stable there, and uh, then he went on to train when Paddy went to, might have been Singapore or something. Mm. Um, uh, with uh, Heather Weller, a local lady here, and uh, he wasn't long doing that before he decided to uh, venture out and go to Australia. And uh, he, what a great story that is of Chris Waller. You know, he went over there, he slept on people's couches, I think. Mm. Uh, some people back there funded him to a certain degree, and uh, he's gone on and uh, respected that, of course, and uh, gone on to the wonderful deeds that he is. He's a, he's a machine, Chris Waller, and a hell of a hell of a nice guy. I think he recently... Uh, landed his 13th Sydney Trainers Premiership. Incredible, isn't it? And oh. over 150 Group 1s now. Yes. Uh, just amazing. He is just amazing. And he, he was virtually unknown here uh, before he went. So, uh, mm. you know, the belief in himself uh, and Steph, his wife, they've, uh, they've done so well and uh, all, all applauded to them.
Harking back to the call we heard right at the top of the podcast, excellence, freakish win in the 2005 Mudsway Stakes at Hastings. Now, you tell me you probably shouldn't have been working that day. You were crook. <laughs> yeah, well, I had some throat thing going on, you know, um, and my voice was marginal for a start, and uh, then... You know, about sort of nine or ten o'clock in the morning, it sort of started disappearing on me. So I was uh, mm-hmm. sort of between uh, a rock and a hard place, really. Um, so I t- did what I did with uh, various medicines and things. Mm-hmm. I managed to to revive it and keep doing that between the races to mm-hmm. to get through. And then when it came to excellent, and I could see he's going to unleash, and so I was in two minds whether to go hard or go home. You know, mm-hmm. so I thought this could turn to turn to custard uh, if there's nothing comes out. But luckily, it mm-hmm. did, and uh, that that finish that he had, that feeling that you got mm. from watching that horse was just goosebumps, you know, like incredible to pick them up like that. And uh, he was he was just a brilliant, brilliant horse. Yeah, and you painted the picture beautifully, and it goes down as one of your all-time great race broadcasts. Mm. Excellent was trained by Mike and Paul Maroney, and he was a freakishly versatile horse. He only raced 13 times. He won eight, That's four right. group ones, yeah. and he ran third yeah. to Maccabi Diva in her third Melbourne Cup. Yeah, and, and flushed off the track, I think, too. Um, mm. Yeah, what a mare she was. Uh, but, yes, he was that good. He was that good. And uh, the Moroni boys, they were so professional. Uh, Mike Trains and Paul was uh, helping there for a while. He's a predominantly uh, the bloodstock agent for, for himself, but mainly Ballymore Sables there with, uh, with Mike. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, Mike's gone on to prove his uh, wonderful abilities for the horse with his Melbourne Cups and uh, you know so many good races that he's been able to win over there and still competing very well now. Mm-hmm. Tony, I'll get you to stand by for a moment. We're going to clear a commitment on the podcast. We'll come back with you after this. A message for trainers of thoroughbred, standard bred and performance horses. Pride's Easy Feed would like you to know a little more about a new product called energy pack a top-up feed designed to replace cracked or flaked corn in a horse's diet energy pack comes in small cubes of extruded corn and full fat soybean and is six times more digestible than raw corn energy pack isn't a complete feed you simply use it to top up your horse's normal ration energy pack will help you to stay ahead in the war against acidosis energy pack comes in 20 kilo bags and is a palatable concentrated source of energy. Speaking of acidosis, Pride's also recommends Easy Light, a great tasting electrolyte. Its glucose and fruit flavouring is just the ticket for those fussy eaters. For best results, feed Easy Light as part of your horse's balanced ration. Replace those lost salts and keep your horses on their water through the long hot summer. Pride's Easy Light and Pride's Energy Pack, a winning double from Pride's Easy Feed. Masters in the field of equine nutrition. Our special guest is recently retired, legendary New Zealand race caller Tony Lee. You fell in love with Starcraft the moment you saw him in the Hastings Parade Yard before the 2004 yeah. Mudgeway. He had great presence, yeah. didn't he? Oh, what a horse. Oh, what a horse. You know, they talk about a horse filling your eye. Well, he he got, we got both eyes pulled with him. He was so big and strong and loose mm. uh, and a cult, of course, um, and he's 
coat was beautiful, beautiful red coat, chestnut coat that he had on him and his mm-hmm. presence that he had as his carriage, you know, like the way he walked around, he just owned the place. He was quite incredible to, to witness. He was a wow moment when I first saw him for sure. Lee Finnis was his jockey that day. Hmm. Yeah, it was Leith. He was a, well, a terrific rider, and he got a couple of years finished, I think. Uh, he'll be in the Bloodstock game. I see him around there at Karaka, uh, and he's doing a bit of pre- uh, presenting on uh, trackside over here as well. Mm-hmm. So he's got a few strings to his bow there now. And, uh, yeah, but a great touch rider, Lee Thinnis. You know, he's, he, he always was able to get his horses into a lovely rhythm. And, uh, boy, he, when he released that day, that was incredible. That was incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, three weeks later, again at Hastings, Starcraft won a Group 2, the Stony Bridge with Glenn Boss yeah. there to ride him on this occasion. Glenn had won the derby on him in Sydney. Yes, and uh, I think a friendship with uh, Paul Macon was the owner, I think. Yep. Um, and uh, Boss, he's always, uh, you know, done things outside the square a little bit. So, he's, yeah, he came over and uh, he came over and rode him. And he's done that a few times on various horses as well. It always, always attracts plenty of interest, of course. Mm-hmm. Then came the Group 1, Kelt Capital. With again Bossy yeah. on board, there was one to beat him on the day, though, Tone. There was, there was Bell Muse, written by uh, young man Jamie Bullard, uh, who mm. was a very competent rider here. He's now training down in the uh, Christchurch area, I think, with only a, a few horses there. But uh, yes, Kevin Myers, dummy, you call him Dummy Myers, which uh, mm. is just the was, you know, the wrong worst name that you could have. That's an oxymoron, really. I would think he's so clever. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> uh, he's so clever, and uh, he's been a great horseman all, all of his life. Um, but in that one, and he doesn't know, he wouldn't go to any fashion parades too often, Kevin, I wouldn't think. Mm. Um, but that for that meeting, for that day, he'd bought a new suit. <laughs> and uh, he was as uh, fat as anything there and proud, proud of it too, and he must have known because, uh, mm. yeah, Bell News. Just uh, went straight on by, you know, halfway down the straight there that day. He uh, was Starcraft trying as hard as he did. Mm. It was just Bellmuse's day, and he had the nice uh, soft run behind him, and he just went bang, and it was impressive, yes. Starcraft went on to win Group 1 races in England and France before going mm. to the stud. Mm. He wasn't a sensation at stud, but he did leave some notable ones. Star Witness is a good example. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Basically, didn't do that well at, at stud, did he? But I think he might—he might have been international miler of one of those years that he was performing uh, over there as well. Mm. Yeah, just a super, super horse and mm. powerful. I wouldn't even know what weight he'd be, but uh, he'd be over five fifty, close to six, I think, and tall and mm. light on his feet and all the things you love in a horse, you know. Yeah, I know. He knocked you right out the first time you ever saw him, yeah. Starcraft. Tony, I read somewhere that you enjoyed calling the horses at Hastings more than any other track. Why was that? I don't know if it's more than any other. It's, uh, I guess it's the time of year, like the spring, mm. um, and, and the first of the, you know, the big races uh, come around when pretty much Hastings. They might have had one uh, uh, guineas at, uh, at Wanganui prior to that, but they were all there. They were all there to play each and every year, so... Uh, that was always a, a special uh, time of year for us. We got through the winter sort of thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I have enjoyed calling there. I've got a very good uh, calling position. You're back uh, from the track and up high, mm-hmm. so they sort of walk at you there. You can pick things uh, further out than you would at other places because of that very reason. And, uh, yeah, so 
mm. and help to make some of those races sound uh, exciting, I'm sure. You were widely described throughout your career as the voice of Central Districts Racing in New Zealand. What were the tracks yeah. on your circuit? So we had an area uh, which was from uh, New Plymouth on the west coast, uh, halfway up the island there, to uh, Gisborne on the east coast. Mm. Uh, there wasn't that many meetings there or at a place just an hour further south there called uh, Wairoa, Teikupanga. Mm. Um, uh, but they were they were the extreme distances away, those ones. And then Hastings, uh, which is on that east coast again, mm. pretty much down into that B that uh, ends there at Trenton, at Wellington. So... Mm. Yeah, a number of tracks there, and it's been good. What about Levin? Levin? Um, yeah, I did call at Levin. They don't race there now. I haven't for some time. They race mm. at uh, Old Taki, which is 20 minutes south of where they are. But uh, they, mm. for a little country club, to get a big race, they had uh, the Bayer Classic, uh, which was for three-year-olds, and some outstanding horses mm. have won that over the years. And, it's, and the sponsorship stayed for a long time, and it got through to Group 1. Mm. For a little country club that worked hard, shoulder to the wheel, and uh, you know they all all did their bit there, and uh, they go rightfully should be very proud of what they did achieve. I think. Mm. Did Bone Crusher win that uh, that big race? The yes, day? he did. And you called him yes, that day, did. I think, didn't you? I did indeed. Yeah, I think mm. Cassidy might have come over. Um, and uh, yeah, what a what another horse! You know, you saw a fair bit of him as well, and mm. he just had that I don't know that loosest athletic ability that he had and he was uh, a wonderful will to win. Um, I remember you caught in him one day. He had won a race a week or two before maybe but and he was flat out to win but you said he's got a great big heart and he, mm. he held on and he and he certainly was that type of a horse. He was a real source of mm. 35 of Sunline's races were in Australia. There were two in mm -hmm. Hong Kong, there was one in Dubai and the rest in New Zealand. Now because she was Auckland-based, you didn't get to call Sunline until the occasion of her final start at home. It was the 2002 Mudgeway. Greg Childs was there to ride her, and Hastings yep. sent her off, Tony, with bells and whistles. He certainly did. We hadn't seen a crowd like that at Hastings for ever, actually. Uh, but they came to see her. She was a uh, you know real headline act right from the very start uh, when she first presented race days in the north there. And, uh, yeah, she she uh, was there with a big uh, campaign in front of her, mm -hmm. off to Aussie after that, and uh, she was uh, vulnerable, I would suggest, that day. But, gee, she just wasn't going to get beaten, you know. She uh, she mm -hmm. just was a champion, champion, dominant mare, wasn't she? She's uh, one of our mm -hmm. very best, for sure. Yeah, powerful and very aloof, you know. It, to watch yeah. that mare in the parade yard... Uh, was a sight to behold. She used to strut like a peacock. She knew how yes. good she was. She did. She did. And she was. She backed it up as well, you know. And, uh, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to be uh, close to her via the connections when she did go to Hong Kong those, uh, on those two occasions. And um, so, you know, we were the Kiwis over there making a program about her and, uh, and so we had a bit of social time together as well, and uh, you know it was just it was just great. You know, they go, there's these people going through uh, an international campaign in front of the world, and uh, you know they were, we were lucky enough to be part of it, which was uh, special, actually, very special. While we're on the subject of top mares, let's acknowledge Princess Cope, 
33 mm. starts, 12 wins, 10 placings, 2.86 million, if you don't mind. Four group ones, yeah. three of them were at Hastings. I think she won the Kelt twice. Yes, she did. She did win the Kelt twice. And I think it was when the prize money was pretty good, like a million. Mm. Um, back then, uh, yeah, there was a local man, uh, bank, a miniature banker man that was, uh, Sam Kelt was uh, heavily behind that. Uh, so the Kelt stakes or Kelt capital, um, it was, and they did get it up to uh, that million. And we're looking, did they even get it to two for one year? It was certainly talked about, but, uh, yeah, the prize money was pretty good, but she, Princess Cope, she was also, uh, pretty good. She blasted away in one of them. Mm. And uh, her second one, I think she got away. She dominated them. And the first one, she was ridden by none other than Noel Harris. And, mm. um, you know, when you call in a race, you see things starting to come home. Well, and you think they're going to be a nice sort of fourth or fifth or sixth or something. Mm. But not her. Not her. And a blanket finish and right on the line. And it was uh, cigarette paper thin, the margin. Mm. But it was her she, and Harry. And they arrived right at the bounce. So it was, it was brilliant. Mm. Not surprisingly, Melody Bell. Is high on mm. your list of great mares. 19 wins, seven placings, four million. The first New Zealand trained horse to win 14 Group 1. She had the audacity to break Sunline's record. You saw a lot of it. That's her. right. I did. I did and loved her. Loved her tenacity uh, and her dominance as well. Like uh, she was, uh, and, she, and she won the Triple Crown, the first ever to do that there at the Bay. Mm. Um, but yeah, the most amount of Group One wins. It's a different era, different time, and we, you know, we can't even compare them. Like chalk and cheese, I suppose. But uh, she was just such a wonderful uh, way of winning uh, that she would have. You know, she would just get there. There would be a tooth and nail struggle her and another. She'd win it, or she'd come from off them and uh, pick them up the last little bit with an unbelievable turn of speed and mm. just that will to win. How she was, she was, uh, she was quite amazing. You enjoyed calling a horse called Darcy Brahma in his races. Mm. A ten-time winner for Tiakau Racing. I heard you call of his Telegraph handicap win in 2007. Uh, he beat a horse yeah. called Sea Change. I could tell you really like Darcy Brahma. Yeah, I did. He just said that, uh, you know, those colts that have got that nice uh, carriage about them, I suppose, um, and he was just balanced everywhere. It was beautiful. Um, and she was really good as well. Sea change, um, you know, she was a she was a top flight mare for sure. Mm. They had a couple of battles actually, but uh, yeah, he uh, he was able to get there for that one. And uh, it's a great race to Telegraph because they start down the chute and they sort of come flying from anywhere. There's been some massive finishes in that race over the years, and mm. you really got to have your wits about you where they're coming from. Yeah. Mm. About twelve years ago, you had a disagreement with Tab Trackside. And you literally walked away from your plum roll, which came as a big disappointment to your many fans. Now, you saw this hiatus as an opportunity to put your toe in the water outside of New Zealand. Next thing, we find Tony Lee signing a contract with the Selangor Turf Club in Malaysia. You spent two years there. How many tracks, Tony? Just the one. Just one? Just the one. It was a doddle. It was a doddle. Yeah, they were trying to just break out on their own at that time as Singapore, I guess, had done from the Malaysian Racing Association maybe 15 years before that, 20 years before that. Mm. And so they were uh, having a look at just uh, going on their own and so they had to call her only for themselves. And um, 
uh, and raced maybe 40 times a year. So it wasn't a, t- a tough gig at all. It was uh, tough when I first got there, I suppose, because I was missing my family and things like that and the weather and I didn't know quite what was what. And um, But anyway, I ended up loving the place and the people. Mm. Uh, and that facility that they've got there at Slangor is uh, quite incredible. Um, I think the, the uh, Aussie, the Hutchinson, uh, I think family might have been involved in the design of it all. And gee, they couldn't have done it any better. Mm-hmm. It can absorb rain, and they can still race. And the facilities—they uh, were a little tired. I understand upgraded now, but uh, yeah, it was—it uh, was uh, the place uh, for racing in Malaysia, of course, which is an Islamic country, uh, and so gambling's not high on the agenda. It's there. But uh, they've got to have an equestrian uh, aspect of their clubs as well to get their licences, as I understand it. Mm. Um, but And so they've got a long, proud history uh, within that uh, as well. And, yeah, no, it was good. It was uh, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Well, with Singapore racing to close down in October, uh, many people mm. are asking the question, will racing in Malaysia get a second life? Yes, and it would be good. To know uh, that as well, like I think you've always got to honour history uh, in this game. And uh, there was a time that uh, Kuala Lumpur Sling or Turf Club they raced, but where the twin towers uh, in the KL uh, city is mm. or are, uh, that was uh, the race course used to be around about that area. So they sold it and got very big money for it. And at that time they were um, pretty well to do club also and the likes of Pickett and Co used to go there and ride. They were the, it was mm. the top club. It was before Dubai, Hong Kong, all of these places. Mm. Uh, and they were the number one. And uh, yeah, they they had uh, the big crowds and the big horses and names as well and internationals and it would be good if they could get back somewhere near there. They've got a you know they've got a cultural difference I suppose to get there. But from what I understand, uh, they're looking to try and improve anyway. In 2017, fate took you back to TAB trackside. Resident caller Mm. Tom Wood accepted a retainer from the Singapore Turf Club and you were approached to return to your former post. Indeed. Indeed I was, and uh, and gratefully so. I was was looking at having to get a job. Um, (laughs) Mm. I got a... Uh, Brian, my wife and I have got a, a business in the Wellington Railway Station, a bar cafe area there. So I was pottering around there for uh, yeah, a year or so after I, I came back and uh, all of a sudden I hear that Tom's on his way to Singapore now, Hong Kong, so he's progressed really well. Mm-hmm. But he was doing the area that I um, had done. So I just said I'm around and after much consternation about a few things, uh, yeah, they uh, they gave me the gig and I'm very, very grateful to get it too. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about your pub a little later, but for now... I know our regular listeners would want me to seek your assessment of the trainers of your era. I don't think there will be any surprises when you list a few of your favourites. Yeah, yeah, different times, different eras, uh, and I guess different traits of uh, people as well. Um, Noel Eels was uh, just simply an incredible trainer, and uh, he was never got a horse from the sales. He he just put it around with how he did it, but it's just such a part of uh, the horses in his care. He was so dedicated to them, really. Uh, you know, he'd stop the float on the way to uh, Hamilton if they're going out for a big meeting there halfway along and make sure his horses got off and mm-hmm. had a pick and the water and all that sort of thing. I don't think anyone else would stop the float or mm-hmm. would be allowed to <laughs> anyway. But 
Uh, yeah, he's certainly uh, there. Oh, look, uh, over the years has been John Wheeler. Look how well he's done internationally. Mm. Incredible. Uh, yeah, over there with it, and they right named the bar after his horse, Rough Habit. Yes. Um, who he did take into the bar, I think, there. Um, uh, Trevor McKee I spoke of. He, they say he cycled, took a bicycle into Takanini when mm. he went there, mm. and he bought most of it to finish. Uh, and he did very well out of trading and training, of course. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, he's uh, incredible. Um, more latterly, Alan Sharrick, I've got a huge respect for him. I, I sort of consider him the modern Noel mm. uh, Eels, I suppose. Uh, he's uh, very well, and at setting a horse, he's, uh, he's quite outstanding. Mm. Um, uh, the Diaco outfit, uh, incredible. Mark Walker, uh, is, uh, just say he's a brilliant trainer, and he showed that in different countries as well when he dominated in Singapore for a period of time back here now and before him, of course. Mm. Jamie Richards, who's now uh, up in Hong Kong, mm. Is a frequent trainer. He's a he's a Chris Waller type, I would think. Um, mm. uh, to do what he has done and to do what he did uh, was uh, yeah, just nothing short of unbelievable. His attention to detail. Mm. I was lucky enough to meet him as a young fellow when he's uh, went down to talk at some awards down south, I think, and I stayed with Paul Richards, that's his father, mm. um, who and riding and training, I think, uh, then. And uh, yeah, there was this uh, maybe 10, 11 year old walking around. He said, "Ask that boy of mine over there anything. He'll tell you the answer." Yeah. So we had a few questions. He knew it all, mm. he knew it all, and uh, yeah, he's just part of him. So and he's he's brilliant, and he's uh, and he had one year in Hong Kong, I think, thirty six or seven winners his first year, which is nearly unheard of. Mm. So uh, he's obviously made himself up there and uh, and uh, and do very very well. I know he will. Mm. Did we mention Colin Gillings and Dave O'Sullivan? Oh yeah, yeah. What about them? Mm. What about them? And they and 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 so often went across the Tasman as well with uh, their horses and. So often uh, they were hugely competitive and winning some of them as well. Uh, yeah, no, they they were the uh, style of trainer that well they knew how to get the best out of their uh, their horse, and uh, they also had knew how to get the best out of their riders. And they both had good associations, of course, Dave with Lance mm. and Shane Dye before that. Uh, that was similar time, but uh, vital, of course, as we know uh, in the in the on the racetrack. And mm. Colin Gillings had many. Wonderful uh, associations with various riders. Mm. Bobby Vance, I guess, in the days, uh, and Bobby was a top-line rider. Mm. Um, he wasn't a, what you call, coffee book rider. He was a pretty movable sort of a joker, uh, but he kept his point of balance, sort of like Noel Harris, I guess. Uh, he looked mm. to be busy on them, Noel, but he was keeping that wonderful point of balance and keeping the horse mm. to his maximum stride, of course. You've watched many great jockeys through those 1050 binoculars over four decades. And I know you've got a short list of favourites, and I'll be stunned if Noel Harris isn't sitting fairly and squarely on the top of the list. Yeah, yeah. He's a personal friend, so I guess that makes uh, that a little easier, but just so good as uh, his his love of the animal that he was dealing with. I never heard him say a bad word about any horse, you know, Noel Harris. Mm. Quite often, Jockey would be disappointed in the day or whatever about the horse, but uh, yeah. never, ever once did I hear Harris say that. Uh, and he look, he proved himself uh, in Australia and further afield in Asia as well. He, he rode winners there. He's based there for a little while. Uh, and good mates, of course, with Jimmy Cassidy, who's uh, just been a brilliant, brilliant rider. What, 102 group ones or whatever it was? Yes, yeah, amazing. Uh, but, yeah, he could ride them and he could get the best out of them too, the pumper. Uh, quite incredible. Um, uh, other jockeys of, of around uh, that era, I'm trying to think of them, Grant Cooksey, I have great respect for. He started off winning a great northern steeplechase and uh, went on to 
when I think dominated Sydney Premiership for a couple of years at one point mm. and, and further afield, he always kept himself moving around the place because he didn't say much, no. if anything. Uh, but, <laughs> but he certainly got the job done. And, um, I remember one day with great Colin Gillings was ahead of him and uh, he rode and for him in a race and they uh, got beaten and didn't have much luck in the run. And uh, Colin Gillings went into the bird cage, going to grab his horse or go and see the jockey as he unsaddled. And he said, Who the hell taught you to ride like that? And Cookie just looked at him and he said, The same bloke that taught you to train them like that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't no, realise he had such rapier-like wit. <laughs> uh, cookies are yeah. remarkable. But he was still riding. Uh, I didn't work his age out, Tony, at the time, but he must have been 60 when he pulled the pin on his riding career. Easily, easily, I'd say. Mm. And, and did very well. He was uh, very successful. Um, and now, of course, he's uh, training in partnership with uh, Bruce Wallace, who's been uh, the Wallace family, been long-time trainers up around that Auckland area there, and uh, he seems mm. to have found a bit of a key to it. They've got a couple of nice horses uh, coming through, and mm. look, he doesn't change in any which way. Looks as well for uh, Cookie, but, uh, yep, he's, he's doing it and loving it. They tell me too. Mm. Now, speaking of top-class jockeys, there was a day at Otaki many years ago when you got to live the dream. You and your great mate, trainer Alexander Fields, Borrowed two yes. horses from the clerk of the course. <laughs> you gave them the names of two former champion gallopers, and you and Alexander put on an exhibition gallop. And I've seen a photo of it. You didn't look too bad. <laughs> I was pretty average, actually. Yeah, yeah, Alexander and I, he presented and I called it uh, in the central districts. So I was lucky enough to work that time with him and, and learn the horse because he knew them inside out. Um, but yeah, he put together that that we'd ride those two horses and uh, we'd have our own little cox plate there. And the um, uh, the clerks of the course lent us their horses for yeah. the race. Now, I'd ridden a horse for 15 years, mm. so I was pretty high in the irons and the hands well up off the pummel. I can tell you that trying to hang on to this thing. But uh... <laughs> you rode the poetic prince, and yeah. Alexander rode Horlicks. That's right. Wow, what a couple of horses. Oh, yeah, got a couple of horses. He he loved the game, Alexander. Right from the very very start, he used to ride track and train doors. The odd always permit to train still to this day, actually. And uh, what he didn't know about the horses and uh, their makeup and their breeding, he was uh, he was quite incredible. A true true enthusiast of the game who lived it as well and continues to do so. Yeah, good on him. Well, he posted a beautiful tribute to you on an appreciation page. Uh, on the Ooh. website, and I could tell uh, very clearly that you two had been great mates. Yeah, we had, we had, uh, you know, we, and and off the track as well, where we had quite a few uh, fun, fun evenings and uh, etc. Trips away and that sort of thing. So yeah, he was uh, he was a beautiful fellow, really. But uh, yeah, he he, he was uh, so dedicated to racing and. And what he knew, and uh, yes, he put me in the ownership of a couple of three horses as well, and uh, had a bit, a little bit of luck that way. So I'm forever grateful for what he did teach me. I'll be surprised if you're not the only race caller in the world who's also a publican. Uh, you and your wife, yeah. Briar, own the Tracks Bar and Cafe right at Wellington Railway Station. And you tell me you've been we in do. the business for a long time. Yeah, I have. Um, race calling was wasn't a full-time job here. 
many, many years. It is uh, more likely the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we had to, you know, we do other things. And uh, like I did the auctioneering, I was doing that for a long time in the fruit and veggie markets and um, various other aspects going along. And, uh, yeah, the uh, opportunity came up for originally like a sort of a joint venture, I suppose, uh, into the uh, Tracks Bar and Cafe and the Wellington Railway Station. She's a big old girl too, I might tell you, so it takes a bit of running. Mm. Um, and uh, went from there to uh, getting the opportunity to uh, to buy it as well. So uh, And we, we took advantage of that. So for better mm. or worse, COVID not long after, nearly flattened everyone, and mm. uh, particularly that game uh, with the distancing, et cetera, and uh, the staffing that you had to have to uh, do that to implement it, um, and uh, the people just not going out. So, uh, yeah, we were touch and go for a little while, but it looks as though we're starting to get it back on track now, and it's a, it's a good location, really. It's not like a local. It's if you're using the transport system, yeah. and out, 40-odd thousand people do a day. And then, of course, there's the stadium uh, just close by there, and we're sort of the last port of call before they do get to the stadium. So mm. big rugby matches or, or music events or whatever or big sports events, so we get a, a fair old crowd there. So in that way, mm. it's very good. Do you ever get to have a beer with the boys at the tracks bar? Not uh, often these days. Um, probably had too many of them back in the day. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a good camaraderie, but, uh, yes, I'm still in the business. Um, but Brian runs that now, and I'm sort of heading off in this way and uh, bought this property. We live here in Otaki, and I'm pretending to try and fix it up, but I haven't done too much. Mm. Tone, you are the father of four from two marriages. Mm-hmm. One daughter, I am. three boys, and I think we're looking at six grandchildren all up. I think you've got four grandkids, yeah. The, um, I do. I'm lucky. Kate, my uh, firstborn, uh, my oldest, she's uh, the daughter, obviously, and then Daniel, who lives in uh, Melbourne these days, uh, that was from that crop there, and then the second crop are uh, uh, Sam and Geordie. And uh, we're all part and parcel of each other's lives. Uh, they're all together now for the for the race meeting, actually, back on the twentieth of uh, last month, and uh, still here now. So we've got another old family get together coming up uh, this weekend, or uh, well, Sunday through Tuesday, actually. So mm. that'll be good. It's always special. And the four little ones there, uh, they just make it. You know, the Mokapuna, as we call them uh, here in NZ, or some of us do, mm. are, uh, are just a beautiful part of my life, and uh, lucky to enjoy them as well. So forever thankful. Wonderful, mate. Not only is Briar a great asset at the tracks bar, she's also your staunchest supporter in everything you do. Has been, yes, indeed. Indeed, yes. She's, I've lucky I've had the freedom uh, to go and follow my passion. Uh, okay, and it's not family-friendly, the game, John. You'll know that um, with the <laughs> weekend work and public holidays often and, uh, you know, they do uh, miss out as much as we try to make sure that they don't. There's, uh, there is certainly that aspect to it and never once uh, was a question. So, yeah, she, she truly stood by my side. Mm. Tony, what of the immediate future? Is it a case of letting the dust settle before looking yeah. at options, before plotting a new course? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, so it's, it's been, as I said, emotionally difficult uh, this last little bit of this uh, journey, but... Uh, you know, just sort of got to try and think of the right thing, uh, actually. And it's been, I've been lucky, so fortunate that I've had been able to call uh, races for so long and on a full time basis for many, many years now. So uh, that's been a great thing in my life. But I don't know if I am quite ready to just uh, pull the stumps as yet. I don't know. Um, mm. I'll have a look around, see what's, uh, what is uh, possibly out there. It would need to be quite suitable. I'm a bit more into paying it forward now. 
mm-hmm. John, than uh, probably was a previous part of my life. Uh, and so if I can go and help and educate somewhere, it gives them a little bit of a longer future, well, uh, I'd, I'd probably take that opportunity, I would say. Yeah, wonderful, mate. Well, as they say at the federal election telecasts, it's too early to call. Mm. Yeah, it is too early to call. Like, you know, I've never, I, one, I didn't think I was uh, going to finish up at the moment. And uh, so it was sort of thrust upon me, and I've had to try and balance my way uh, through all things, really, and, uh, and try and keep a reasonably uh, positive perspective. Yeah, and, um, you've done, about and, and you've done it with great dignity too, I might add. Well, Tone, I'm delighted to have had the opportunity to acknowledge your incredible career. And just as Peter Kelly was the reason you wanted to be a race caller, you've set the standard by which New Zealand youngsters will aspire for many years to come. Thanks for being so kind to me at Trentham in 1996. And thanks for joining me on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Well, John, it's been my pleasure, actually. My pleasure. I've held you in the highest regard and took many things that you uh, influenced uh, through on, onto my race calls that uh, that you, I think, uh, highlighted. Uh, the love of the horse certainly was that with you uh, and, uh, and the sense of occasion as well. So... Uh, for you to come over and spend some time was wonderful and to recognise me uh, today here. I'm very, very humbled. Thank you. A great pleasure, Tone. Now, we're going to close this podcast in an unusual way. We're going out with the closing stages of Castletown's third Wellington Cup win in 1994. Perhaps Mm. the call that best captured the sheer passion of a New Zealand broadcasting legend. Castletown's giving a sight here. Castletown ranged up to Newbury Star. Placido between them. Starring is now starting to run on, but he's hit the front. Castletown. He's a length clear on Placido. Tour by Lake.